Welcome to Galaxy Forum. I'm your host, Melissa Kaplan, and we're here to explore all that's happening in the LCC galaxy, in our classrooms and on campus, and connecting the work of our stars with our community. Our focus today is mental health is human health. It's a substantial and complex topic. It's been the focus of another Galaxy Forum episode on transgender mental health, and I expect to explore different aspects of mental health with a variety of guests in future episodes. Today, my guests are Louise Rabidou, a licensed professional counselor on staff with LCC's Counseling Services Department, who facilitates personal and educational development through counseling and advocacy. Louise and I have worked together on a series of virtual Mental Health is Human Health events at LCC, as well as the video program, Please Stay, A Call for Suicide and Depression Awareness. Welcome, Louise. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. And Charla Yingling, a clinical therapist with PAR Rehab in Lansing, where she provides psychotherapy services to ethnically diverse client populations of varying ages. It's not mental health related, but I do want to just mention that Charla and I worked together too, though it's been some decades in our previous professional lives when we were both involved in filmmaking and on some independent films, which was a wonderful time. But it's really great to connect on this subject. And thank you for being here, Charla. It's great to be here. Really appreciate it. As I said, this is this is a mammoth and complex subject, and I call it mental health is human health because it is an aspect of each of us as, as to me as a human being, it's as much a part of our health care as taking care of our teeth or our eyes or our bones or our muscles. It's all part and parcel of us as human beings. However, there's a lot of stigma always about that. And I'd kind of like to start just by getting your perspectives on, on do you see that changing? Why is that the case? And, and what do you think about the phrase mental health is, is human health? Louise, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, mental health is human health. You know, our, our brains, our emotions, how we behave, that all impacts every aspect of our overall well-being or if we're feeling unhealthy in those ways. You can't separate mental health and, and our physical health. You mentioned stigma. And, and while there is still stigma um, about having mental health disorders or being on medications that support our mental health, over the years, it is decreasing somewhat, or it's much more common to be talked about. Even having a program like this helps people talk about it, helps increase awareness, helps to break down the barriers and stigmas. Um, and so I think there has been a positive shift to reducing at least some stigma. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say that um, there has been a positive shift in people talking about mental health. Um, and maybe it's because people who are, uh, I want to say popular or stars, or they're beginning to talk about it. And so people go, oh, well, if they're talking about it, I can also talk about it. I can also acknowledge it. I can also do something about it. And so in my work, I work with a lot of kids. And school districts are different, but in some school districts or maybe groups of kids, they're talking about it. I take this medication. Are you going down to the, the room to take your test in a quiet space? And so um, even young people are beginning to accept that mental health is an issue and how do we handle it? 
That's good to know. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in your work, Charlotte, tell us a little bit about PAR rehab. So right now, a lot of our therapists are working, are doing telehealth. A lot of us are still at home. We have a couple folks um, that are back in the office. We also do testing for, you know, dementia, ADHD, uh, school difficulties, learning disabilities, and things like that. And so we work with, uh, I would say, 10 years old and up through the lifespan. One of the therapies that we tend to use is CBT. We work with the whole family system, culturally diverse group of folks, as you mentioned in my bio. And then we have uh, an arm of PAR rehab called Cognitive Consultants, where we work with substance abuse, individuals dealing with that. That's pretty comprehensive. And and how many um, therapists are on staff with PAR rehab? At PAR, I would say about eight. About eight. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's, That's a big workload for eight folks. Yeah. Yeah. We do refer out, you know, because we do a lot of testing, a whole lot of testing. And so we can't manage all of that load. So we have some, uh, a person that manages those referrals for us. To other therapists. Yeah, other and therapists. There are places that we refer mm-hmm. to. Yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. So Louise, uh, at LCC, we have an entire counseling services department. Mm-hmm. When I say entire, <laughs> I know that means, I think, three <laughs> counselors. Four now. We're very excited that we have, just two weeks ago, we have a new counselor on staff. So we now have four full-time counselors to provide um, support and counseling for our students. So we're really excited to add a fourth. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Yes. I mean, because it's a big, it's a big population. Yes. So what services does LCC Counseling mm-hmm. provide? Yeah, so LCC provides free, confidential, short-term counseling for mm-hmm. students. And because we just have now the four counselors for all the students who are enrolled, it is designed to be short-term. What that means, though, is a bit flexible. So sometimes people come in for just one or two or three sessions or maybe come in um, in a little bit of a crisis and, and needing help kind of emotionally regulating. Other times people come in for regular weekly or biweekly uh, short-term therapy appointments, um, and we address any concerns that they might have. Uh, anxiety is probably our number one issue that our students bring, um, but depression, relationship concerns, uh, substance abuse, eating disorders, uh, general life stress, and and a big one for many of you know the college age student is. All those major life transitions, adjusting to living away from home or declaring a major or racial, gender, sexual identity challenges or finding your own place, separating, individuating from your family system and and who you are as a person as a young adult. And so those are some of the common issues that we see. And that's, I would say, just looking back some decades ago when I was a, a college student, that uh, developing a sense of one's own identity and, and the struggle to do that, that separation, that's pretty common and pretty consistent, wouldn't you say, across generations. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, there's, from what I understand and what I read and hear, there's been a shift in mental health, and some people consider it 
a crisis at this point for teen and youth in terms of depression and suicide. There's a, I, I want to reference something that, a Fresh Air episode uh, that I heard recently, um, an interview with a New York Times reporter, uh, Matt Richtel, who had done a series for New York Times called The Inner Pandemic. And, you know, kind of the deep research on what he termed the crisis. And that this has really, one of the things that's that's changed besides the increasing, is increasing these numbers is that there have been in the past a lot of external factors that youth grapple with as you are dealing with your identity formation, like drinking and smoking, and that those had been kind of the large causes for some some issues, and that now there's more internalized uh, psychological issues, that that's been a change that he observed in, in research. And um, I'm wondering, do you see that in the, the people that, that you deal with? Is that, and what's your reaction when you hear the term crisis? Do you feel there, I guess that's the bigger question, do you feel there's a crisis? And if so, what is the crisis? Maybe we just have more information. Yeah. We have more numbers. Yeah. Um, whereas before we didn't. I feel like one of the things that's happening, you know, with young people or with kids is they're spending more time alone on their phones and the information that they're getting from that and how they're uh, framing themselves and how they see themselves in the world, their core beliefs. And um, they begin to build stories. They, you know, begin to um, think negatively of themselves for a variety of reasons. And they're and they are not bouncing that those thoughts and those ideas off somebody else. And so it's building and building and building. And then you get to a place where you feel depressed or you, you know are going further than that. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the I think the the shift toward having the world at our fingertips mm -hmm. um, in our cell phones and our laptops um, all the time we're we're wearing our our digital connection we have it in bed with us mm -hmm. um people are increasingly isolated socially and younger generations are much less likely to drink but also less likely to drive to date to take classes face to face oh, what a great um, point. everyone yeah. is is you know or i should say everyone many people are much more isolated socially than we were a generation ago or even pre-pandemic because um, the pandemic really just exacerbated all of that social isolation and loneliness so the crisis in many ways is is a crisis of loneliness or disconnection, um, which I think contributes to depression and anxiety and and a lack of of coping skills. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, because that's it, it takes a while to learn coping skills. Mm -hmm. And another thing that was that was referenced in, in the interview on Fresh Air and then also in the the series was that what you said, Louise, in terms of the amount of information and the way that we get information at the same time that brains, youth brains are still being developed and still trying to manage how one exists in the world. But yet there's this great increase of information. And then you're also seeing parents and teachers and other people grappling with with that as well, even though they may have the means to handle it better psychologically, at least, you know. One, yeah. one would hope, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, um, the information that kids have access to before they didn't have access to this information. You would mm -hmm. say, no, I don't you don't I don't want you reading about that or learning about that. And some of it is just too much. It's inappropriate. It's, you know, it's overwhelming. Yes. Mm -hmm. We know that that's that can be part of anxiety. Right. And, and while it's a great 
means to connect and support, it can also be a means to be really critical and for people to feel bad about themselves too. So coping skills. One of the things we want to talk about today are different types of therapy. There are many different types of therapy, both the different types of therapy and then how how does one navigate the system in order to access that? Because I think that's what I've heard as part of the crisis too, that there's there's a greater need than there are providers. So where would you like to start with that? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a huge topic. Yes. I, I know, you know, when we think about navigating the system. That is complex, even for those of us who are mental health providers. You know, you have insurance, a lot of insurance and and things dictate access. Um, different populations have more access. There's cultural limitations on who's, who's um, feels comfortable accessing. For instance, our, our new counselor we just hired is a male. That's the first male counselor we've had in several years. So that impacts how willing certain populations are to uh, seek services. And so it, it's a really complex situation. Yeah. For students at LCC, is our counseling services department kind of a first step? Mm -hmm. So if you're an LCC student, you know, you're eligible for those free confidential counseling. And you mentioned different types of therapy. All of us are trauma-informed therapists. We're all allies, but we all are somewhat eclectic. And, and what that is, is, and you'll find that with most mental health therapists, um, have been exposed to or trained in a variety of modalities and have certain theories or modalities that seem to fit best with their personality or their skill level or their agency or whoever they're working with. And, and so really the most important thing is when you are trying to find a mental health professional is to find someone who you feel comfortable with, who you connect with, whether it's a specific type of therapy like cognitive behavioral therapy or DBT or um, rational emotive behavior therapy. The most important factor is often how you connect with that counselor and if you trust them, if you feel safe with them, if you feel seen and heard by them, that's really in many ways more important than the actual style of therapy. Yep, yep, it's that therapeutic alliance. Because mm -hmm. if you're not going to do what your therapist says, guess what? You're not gonna, <laughs> likely not going to get better, not like likely going to try the different things that they offer. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I do want to mention that for immediate assistance, if anybody listening needs or knows somebody who needs immediate assistance, 988 is the number to call. It's a 24-hour crisis line for those in emotional distress. And linked to this podcast, will have a whole array of resources for people to access as well. I absolutely agree that relationship, as with so many things, is, is going to help you be more successful. But as a starting point, and maybe it's not so much for people seeking therapy, but people seeking help for others, can we talk just a little bit about the different kinds? Because if I was somebody who knew nothing about therapy and I was looking at some different places with services, I'd see CBT and DBT and REBT and ISTDP and <laughs> all these acronyms. And they they mean, like you said, there's there's similarities, mm -hmm. but, but there's difference. You both mentioned CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Yeah. Um, 
Tell me about that. It's been around for a long time. <laughs> um, and it, you know, it, it really is what you think impacts what you feel impacts what you do. So that's kind of the foundation for it. And um, as you talked about physical health, you can't separate the two. They really, really go together. Um, how we're thinking about something is going to impact if I go out and talk to somebody, if I stay inside my room and think about whatever it is that I might be thinking about that's not appropriate. And with CBT, it really helps you to um, think about what you're thinking about, essentially. There, um, there's this list of terms called cognitive distortions, and that helps us to think, um, for example, if I had 10 things and one of them, one of them was negative, do I focus on all the things? Or do I just focus on that one negative thing? Mm. Am I able to balance? Mm -hmm. Or do I think that I have a lot of control over what, what is happening? Sometimes we feel like we impact a person's life in a way that we really don't have control over their life, so to speak. And so sometimes we feel more powerful than we are. Um, and so it's finding a balance and understanding what I do control and what I don't control. And so when you're working with CBT, you really help somebody to see um, realistically, is this a rational belief? Is this an irrational belief? So what about DBT, dialectical behavior therapy? I can't speak to it specifically. I'm not certified in okay. that, but I do know that DBT um, works really well, especially with people who um, may have certain uh, disorders like borderline personality disorder, um, having a lot of relationship challenges, a lot of times community mental health, and um, there's actually a DBT Institute in Mason. And a lot of people find it very helpful, especially for longer term kind of chronic challenges that people have. But I think there's there's a lot, there's so many different types of therapy. And, you know, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy has been around probably the longest or the most studies. Mm -hmm. And it works really well with anxiety. And, and since anxiety is so rampant, it's, it's often one of the most used. And sometimes clients or sometimes therapists will use different approaches depending on their client's needs. So depending on the, the concern that the client's bringing or even the, the style or strategy that the, the client is wanting. And so depending on the repertoire of skills that the therapist has, they may shift and use different types of skills with, with different clients or different situations. So therapists are, are I mean, you have to be multifaceted. There's always, you know, your licensing and, and, and degree initials. And Louise, you are a licensed professional mm -hmm. counselor. Mm -hmm. And Charla, you are a clinical so therapist. I have a master, master in social work. Master, master in, in social work. work. And you have a master in social work. Nope. No, I have a bachelor's in social work and a master's in counseling. Okay. And, and this is a, a, something we talk <laughs> to clients about all the time, especially as we may be referring them to mm -hmm. more longer-term treatment or specialized treatment, is what to look for and who to look for. And the reality is that there's a huge amount of overlap between clinical social workers, licensed professional counselors, marriage and family therapists, uh, uh, psychologists. And so 
they all have slightly different specialty areas um, at the master's or, or um, graduate level, but they all have huge amount of overlap in how they provide services. Um, but you want to make sure you're talking to someone who's licensed or um, certified in their particular field um, and that you feel comfortable with them and that you feel safe with them and they're ethical. <laughs> Those are probably the biggest challenges and not to get too bogged down into what credentials are after their name as long as they have the credentials. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me add a little bit about DBT. I'm not uh, licensed or trained in it either, but it's more supportive. Often you have... What does uh, that mean? One-on-one one -on -one therapist that works with you. You have somebody that is on call during a certain amount of time for you. There's also a group that works on your case. Ah. Uh, so there's more to it than just um, you know biweekly or every week meeting with your one therapist. I see. And then the techniques might be a little bit... Different yeah. It's as well. very involved, very, mm. very involved, yeah. Interesting. Well, how, how fortunate for the Lansing area that there is a dedicated institute. And I know there are, um, there are quite a few different agencies that, I mean, there's individual therapists and then there's, there's you know, through the like Michigan State University and then there's um, organizations like Therapy Today, mm -hmm. PAR Rehab mm -hmm. um, that have therapists staff on therapists with different different spe specialties. I mean, I don't know. Is there, do you, either of you feel like there's a shortage in our area? And, and I just want to quickly ask the opportunities for students who want to pursue mm -hmm. uh, this as a, a field of study and a profession. Mm -hmm. So those were two questions. Shortage in this area, opportunities for students. So I would say that I have to manage my caseload. Mm. I could meet with clients from 8 o'clock to probably 9 o'clock at night, but that's not good for my mental health. So I have, do have to manage my caseload. So, I, you know, I don't know. I know, I know that we do refer out. Um, I don't know that we really ever have a waiting list. Everybody's taken care of. So, I, I, and, you know, I don't, I don't know for okay. the area. Sure. I don't know if you have any thoughts. I would say that, that the greater Lansing area, but also, you know, in general, Michigan or the nation has a shortage in that the need is greater than the available services and also the available affordable services. Yes. And so there are agencies like Crystal Ray that provide some lower cost options. Um, sometimes master's level interns at certain agencies will see people for free or sliding scale. But many people, especially LCC students or people listening to the show, may not have insurance. And so their, their options are much more limited. And so that's an access concern. But it also depends on, on getting into, like if you were to call a private practice therapy agency, um, you know, hopefully you could get in within a couple weeks. But if you're looking at a specific therapist or a specialty area, it might be weeks. And what's even more difficult is to see a psychiatrist. And so to get a psychiatry intake appointment for a medication evaluation for psychotropic medications is very difficult. Um, it might be several weeks to months. Wow. Wow. And that that's, you know, what what I've read and, and researched that is part of what's considered the crisis is is access. Um, and, you know, both in terms of, of availability of therapists and the cost 
and uh, it plays into so many factors of, of mental health. We have just a couple more minutes, and so I want to give you each a chance to, to share uh, anything that you might wish to on this subject that we haven't talked about yet, which is huge. <laughs> you mentioned about students. So there's yes. this process for students that are mm-hmm. interested in this work. And they, there's, you know, a certain amount of hours that you have to do for training. And then once you finish school, there's a certain thousands of hours that you have to do for training, not to get anybody to shy away. But um, you're really trained by the time you get to the point of doing the therapy. So there is a process. And we'd love to have folks come in and do that work because we need more therapists, as you suggested. That's great. And I think LCC is a good place to start mm-hmm. um, with that because then you can transfer, take your associate's degree and, and transfer to get, you know, bachelor's, master's degree and, and do that, that kind of clinical work. Yeah, do those internships. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, for any any potential students listening, uh, definitely consider because you're needed. Yes, you're needed yeah. in this this area yes. for sure. Um, I think we're really fortunate to have what we do have here on campus with mm-hmm. our counseling services. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, one of the things that college supports is this uh, awareness of mental health, mm-hmm. and that that's part and parcel of who you are as a human being. So. Mm-hmm. Everybody, as we say, you belong here yeah. and all of you belongs. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so. And I think LCC has really promoted a culture of care. And I think that's a way that that we care. We care about our students and there are services available. So if you are considering talking with someone, um, you know, making an appointment with a counselor, if you're an LCC student is a great step to explore that option. Um, There's no pressure. There's no commitment. Uh, You can have an intake appointment and and see how that fits for you. Um, And then see if that's something you want to continue to explore, any personal growth challenges. And it's really about caring and taking care of your whole well-being. Definitely. And we will have uh, links to those resources, uh, to PAR Rehab and to LCC's resources, as well as other resources in the notes for this episode of Galaxy Forum uh, that listeners can find at lccconnect.org. You may also connect with me or with our guests through that. We'll have their contact information. This is such an important and ongoing conversation, and so I want to thank both of you very much for being part of it and contributing your knowledge. Sharla Yingling, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And Louise Rabadou, thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for tuning in. LCCConnect.org is the place to go for other episodes of Galaxy Forum and for other programs on LCC Connect. Also, special thanks to our technical producer today, Dedalian Lowry, and to Andy Callis for composing our theme music. I'm Melissa Kaplan, and this is Galaxy Forum on LCC Connect. Celebrating one year of LCC Connect, visit us online at lccconnect.com and click on the Celebrate tab to find out more. We are LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Lansing Community College Performing Arts features several events and presentations throughout the year. Find more information by visiting lcc.edu slash showinfo. Finish your high school diploma for you and your family. 
Visit finishyourdiploma.org to find free adult education centers near you. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Founded in 1957, LCC has addressed the needs of Michigan industries through education for more than 65 years. Anchored by the downtown campus located in the heart of Lansing, LCC serves mid-Michigan communities with additional campuses in Delta Township, East Lansing, and Livingston County. The college offers more than 200 degrees and certificate programs and is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Those interested in learning more about LCC may visit lcc.edu slash youbelong. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. This is Bob Myers from the Historical Society of Michigan with a Michigan History Moment. Come quickly, the messenger cried to the doctor. A man had been shot. The accidental shooting occurred on Mackinac Island in 1822. Alexis St. Marty, a French-Canadian voyageur and employee of the American Fur Company, had been hit by a shotgun blast at close range. The load of duck shot tore through his side from the rear, broke ribs, blew through his stomach, and exited the right side of his chest. Dr. William Beaumont, the United States Army surgeon stationed at Fort Mackinac, reached the scene within a half hour. He cleaned the wound, pushed a protruding portion of the stomach and one lung back into the chest cavity, and tried to make St. Martin comfortable. The doctor held out no hope. In the days before antibiotics, chest wounds like this one were almost invariably fatal. Dr. Beaumont waited for St. Martin to die. But... St. Martin didn't die. The patient experienced fever, coughing, and difficulty in breathing, but he gradually improved. After a month, his appetite returned, and the wound slowly healed. In 10 months, St. Martin could walk around and do light work. After a year, he was back to normal, except for one thing. Despite Dr. Beaumont's best efforts, the hole in St. Martin's side refused to close. It created a fistula, an opening directly into his stomach. It dawned on Dr. Beaumont that a golden opportunity lay before him. In the 1820s, no one understood how the process of digestion worked. He began a series of experiments that lasted for the next decade. He lowered bits of food into St. Martin's stomach on a string and drew them out at various intervals. Among other things, he confirmed a theory that gastric juices contained hydrochloric acid and that they were secreted by the stomach lining. St. Martin was not an enthusiastic guinea pig, but Beaumont secured his cooperation by paying him to work as his servant. In 1838, Beaumont published the account of his experiments. It is recognized today as one of the greatest contributions to medical science of the 19th century. Alexis St. Martin married, fathered several children, and died in 1880 at the age of 78. Dr. Beaumont died in 1853. Michigan's Beaumont Health System and the United States Army's William Beaumont Army Medical Center honor the memory of this pioneering physician. This Michigan History Moment has been brought to you by MichiganHistoryMagazine.org.
Keep connected with LCC Connect at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College has been a proud collaborator of the Lansing Promise Scholarship since 2012. The Lansing Promise Scholarship offers graduating high school seniors who live within the Lansing School District and attend a high school within district boundaries an opportunity to attend LCC. Since its inception, over 1,000 enrolled students have saved over $2 million, earning over 400 degrees and certificates as well as 30,000 credits at LCC. For more information on the Lansing Promise Scholarship, please visit lcc.edu hope. They are our cuddlers and coworkers, purr machines and love bugs, and constant companions. They are our pets, our family, and they make life so much better. When we face unexpected challenges in life, so do our pets. That's why we're on a mission to support people who love their pets and the pets who love their people, ensuring these families stay exactly where they belong, together. And you have something to offer. With an open heart and mind, there is nothing you can't do. There's no gesture too small or too big when it comes to helping. Whether donating a bag of kibble, sharing an Instagram post of a lost cat, or welcoming a foster pet into your home, every bit of kindness counts. You can help keep pets and people together. Visit petsandpeopletogether.org to learn how to be a helper in your community. This has been a public service announcement brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. We're celebrating one year of LCC Connect, Lansing Community College's first podcast platform dedicated to keeping you connected with LCC and your community. Catch the vibe by visiting us at lccconnect.org and then click on the Celebrate tab to check out photos, videos, and find out how you can get involved. We are LCC Connect. Voices, vibes, vision. You're listening to Start Here, Finish Here, and Everything in Between. A podcast dedicated to reaching out to students and their families to explain the nuances of transferring credits from LCC to another college or university, and more importantly, demystifying some of the popular beliefs surrounding higher ed. On today's podcast, we will be focusing on college affordability and the many resources students can utilize to complete their education and fulfill their career goals. My guest is Ryan Fewins Bliss. He is the executive director of the Michigan College Access Network. Ryan has worked in education and the nonprofit field for more than 15 years, serving in K-12, higher education, and community organizations. He is active in his community and around the state and is committed to public service and education access. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So happy to be here. Well, we're going to pick your brain here about all the resources that students have available to them. One of the first things I wanted to talk about was the conversation about affordability and in what ways um, are all the headlines sort of damaging 
students pursuing their educational goals? Well, I'm so glad you started with this. We often talk at MCAN about adults who give bad advice. And and in that uh, bucket, I would include media talking heads. So you turn on, you know, any given cable station at any time of the day, you are likely to see someone talking about college is too expensive, college is not affordable, you'll end up with a million dollars in debt, there's no return on investment, you know, the time of college has come to an end, all of which is uh, hogwash. (laughs) The data says the exact opposite. So What we see is that students, especially low-income students who already are fearing affordability, students of color, first-generation college-going students, students who are by large numbers not on sort of a college path right now or don't believe they are, they hear those folks saying that and they think, college isn't for me. There's no way I could pay for college. And so it really depresses any sort of fire inside them, them or their family, that this is possible. And then all the messages from their school counselor, all their messages from, you know, their local community college, all their messages from us at MCAN that say, like, you can go to college, you can afford college, college is for you, they're sort of numb to because they've already heard sort of, you know, the real deal on the media saying college is not for them. So it's really difficult to try to unpack that for students and families. Absolutely. It's kind of hard to now, like, fight that negative. Can you share your insights on President Biden's student relief plan and the Michigan Achievement Scholarship? Yeah, the uh, student loan relief plan, if the court system lets that go through, is great. Uh, It's clear that the way that the country has set up student loans is not helpful, is keeping people in debt and sometimes in poverty, and that's not the intention. We want to make sure people can get loan money, pay it back legitimately, but not do so in a predatory way. And the way the loans are set up right now, you can pay and pay and pay, and then somehow you end up owing more money than you owed to begin with. And that, I think we can all agree, doesn't make sense. So I like the proposal to say, we're going to take a little bit off to give you all some relief. The next proposal, I think last week that his administration came out with was to restructure loans moving forward. I think those are really great. But to your previous question, all of the talk about everyone's going to end up with tons of money and loans and no one can pay it back. That has sort of reinforced this media message to students and families that college isn't affordable. And it's so not affordable that now we have to offer loan relief on the back end. So while it's good for loan holders and families and the economy in general, it is also reinforcing that message that college is too expensive. On that note, though, college is now becoming much more affordable in Michigan via the Michigan Achievement Scholarship, which we are just incredibly thrilled with. It is the largest investment in financial aid from the state in a very, very long time, perhaps even ever. Something like a 169% increase in state-based financial aid in, in one bill. So we're thrilled about that. Suddenly, people will now have a pathway to community college, to tribal college, to independent colleges, to the public universities, whatever is the best match and fit for them so they can take that money to that institution. So it's hard to tell you in words how thrilled we are about this. This is a big darn deal. We're trying to make sure students and families know this is happening, and this is going to happen starting in class of 2023 and then beyond. So the class of 24 and 25 and beyond will also have access to this. So this is a long-term investment. 
the message we now want to send to the legislature and the governor was this was a good investment. Students and families needed this and students and families took advantage of this. We don't want it to go away because folks aren't using it. So what is the path to getting that achievement scholarship? Do they fill out some paperwork or is it based on their testing scores? How does that work? Well, we have been incredibly successful at getting the state to stop creating new paperwork. (laughs) Nobody likes paperwork. People don't like to fill it out. The state doesn't like to process it. So let's get rid of that. So the state in, in a wise move when they passed this bill said, we're not creating a separate application for the Michigan Achievement Scholarship. All you got to do is fill out your free application for federal student aid, your FAFSA, which students and families should be doing anyway, even if they don't think they're on the college path, to help them see what that package might look like. It might be a game changer to decide them to get on the college path. So they were very wise to say, we're just going to use that FAFSA. So students that have an EFC, an estimated family contribution of $25,000 or below, are eligible for the full Michigan Achievement Scholarship. There is a portion of that that comes first that is sort of a minimum amount that everybody will get. And then there's what's called a last dollar amount, which students who have need after all of their other aid is taken into consideration will be able to access that last dollar amount. So there's two sort of chunks of money in the Michigan Achievement Scholarship. So I'm really excited that this is much more streamlined. So students and families should fill out their FAFSA. That'll tell them if they're Pell Grant eligible. That'll tell them if they're Michigan Achievement Scholarship eligible. That will help with institutional aid from their college, from other federal aid. And if students do want to take out loans, that's the pathway to federal loans as well. So really setting that up as a one-stop shop to make the college going process much easier and clearer to students and families. That's awesome. The more the more seamless we can get with the process for students, I mean, that is wonderful. What other things are you doing at uh, Michigan College Access Network to assist students and families? Oh, Patty, we don't have a podcast long enough for that. <laughs> Just hit the highlights. <laughs> this is what we do day in and day out, uh, and we really love it. Uh, We really work on the systems level at MCAN. So we don't work directly with students and families. We're trying to change the things that are making things hard for students and families down the line. So institutional policy. God bless our friends at LCC, but you, like every other institution, have some policies that make it harder for students to access and be successful. The state has those policies. Uh, K-12 schools have those policies. So how can we sort of poke the system to be better? How can we poke the system to be more accessible for students and families? So we work with K-12 buildings, high school buildings. We've got a ton of programming around college applications and FAFSA completion and announcing and declaring where you're going to go and changing uh, things within the school building, all sorts of things around high schools uh, to get that system working better. We have a community mobilization department that works on the community system. So how do people who aren't in a K-12 school or a higher education institution, how can they help students and families go? How can we as a community make sure we're supporting our students, our children to be able to access college and hopefully come back to the community and invest in the economy locally? Uh, So we've got local college access networks all over the state that help do that. We've got other alliances that we pull together. We do about a million dollars in grant making out to local communities and local organizations to help them do things like that. 
We also have a service strategy department, and that's where we're using funding from AmeriCorps and other sources to help put boots on the ground in communities to help students. We know, and this is true of almost all things with youth, that a caring adult in their life makes a difference. Uh, and it certainly is true of education. So whether that's a teacher, a school counselor, certainly we hope parents fit into that uh, bucket. We are putting folks in high schools, college advisors, to be one more caring adult to help students do these things. We're putting college completion coaches on community and tribal college campuses to be one more caring adult to help them, even once they go to college, be able to persist and finish and actually get a certificate or degree. So trying to use volunteerism as a strategy to help students go to college. And then in the next three years in our new strategic plan, we'll be working more with student success. So once we get all these kids to college, how do we make sure they finish? We'll be working with adult students, uh, which is relatively new for us. And we'll be working with aligning the workforce to make sure K-12, higher ed, and the workforce are all aligned. So I know that was a laundry list and too much to list, but those are the systems that we're poking on to do better for students because ultimately what we have is not a student problem in our country and in our state. We have a systems problem. We are not a friendly system to students and families to be able to access higher education. So we got to stop trying to change them and start trying to change us. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was thinking that as you were talking that so many states around the country are what we call system states. So if a student goes to junior college, their associate degree and whatnot is accepted at the four-year school. And since Michigan is not what we call a system state, it's kind of like ad hoc, right? It's like the Wild West. You just kind of, you know, depends on where you plan on going. So I'm wondering, is transfer any part of that conversation when you talk with students about affordability? In other words, are we encouraging students to look at the community colleges around them first and then transferring those credits? We certainly talk about transfer, but we use that theory I mentioned earlier called match and fit. We want the student to find the best match and the best fit for them institutionally so that they will be successful there. Oftentimes, that is a local community college. Sometimes it's a four-year institution in the state. Sometimes it's an out-of-state school. Where are they going to be able to thrive? Where are they going to be able to find the program that they want? You know, does it matter to them if they go to a U of M or a Northwestern or a Harvard? Or are they looking for just some rock-solid education that the name doesn't necessarily matter? You know, we've got an incredible bunch of regional universities in the state that they could go to. So first and foremost, what's the best match and fit for the student? If they choose community college, as so many do, or tribal college, certainly transfer is the next conversation. Are you looking to get a certificate or an associate's degree from that community college? Are you looking then to transfer to a four-year? Transfer has been a bit rough because we are not a system state. We can't say all students who do this will then be able to transfer here and will look like this. Instead, it's you know individual agreements between 28 community colleges and three tribal colleges and 15 public institutions and about 30 private institutions. So all of those have their own nuances, which frankly does make things a little more difficult for students and families. But institutions have gotten much better about strengthening these pathways for students because we just found a couple of years ago that not as many people are transferring as we would like. Not as many people are transferring as who had identified that they wanted to transfer. So we knew there was a breakdown. 
I'm sure some of your listeners, uh, probably none of your listeners actually have read this recent report from the Michigan Community College Association on transferring, but I, I bring it up not as a data nerd, but it was so fascinating. It tracked students. Where were they going from community college to four-year? And where were the primary feeders into four-year from community colleges? And, you know, I worked in this uh, business a long time, and I thought I had this down pat. Of course, these students are going there, and these institutions are pulling from there. I read that report, and it was it blew my mind. Where we think students are going is not where they're going. Where we think students should go is not where they're going. Where we think stu- uh, institutions are feeding from is not necessarily happening. So that told me that students are making decisions based on something else, and it's probably because those systems aren't as strong as they should be. So we've got some work to do around transfer but it's certainly a really good pathway. What is really great about your previous question around the Michigan Achievement Scholarship, students have five years of eligibility for that scholarship, and they can mix and match. They can go to a two-year institution first and then transfer to a four-year school and take that eligibility with them. So that is an unusual piece in in a scholarship. So we really like that. You know, you mentioned FAFSA. I always stumble on that uh, acronym, but that's that the free application for federal student aid. And um, what are we looking at in terms of where's Michigan in completing their students completing their FAFSA? And like, what do we how do we rank nationally with that? And why is that important? It's too low is the answer to that. We have been losing ground on FAFSA completion in the state since about 2018, 2019. As you can guess, the pandemic really made that worse. Right now, the picture for the 2023 FAFSA is that we've got about 31,426, give or take a few, FAFSAs completed in the state. And these are FAFSAs by traditional high school students, not folks that are already in college or adults. Uh, And that data is as of January 16th. That's about a 26.6% completion rate. Last year at this time, we had 27.6. So we're exactly 1% less than last year at this time. Last year at this time, we were also about 1% or 2% less, less as the year before. So we're, again, headed in the wrong direction. And why this is so important, because of our you know, previous conversation, FAFSA is the ticket to student aid, state aid, federal aid, federal student loans, institutional aid, some scholarships at private institutions or private foundations also require FAFSA completion. It really is a one-stop shop for students and families to see what kind of financial support they can get for college. Also, we know the research says if you fill out the FAFSA, you are more likely to go to college. I know that sort of seems like a no-duh moment, (laughs) (laughs) But the data backs that up. So we believe the more students we can get to fill out the FAFSA, the more likely they will to see that it is actually accessible. College is accessible to them and affordable and that they can go and then make the decision to go. So it's two prong. It's very practical that you can get money from that FAFSA. And also the research says if you fill it out, you're more likely to go. You know, oftentimes I feel like students, especially the high school students, aren't really looking at the long game. Like I, I was I was in a conversation with some other folks about students deciding to work when they get out of high school. And I don't know if they're doing a gap year or just deciding not to do college at all. And I think 
I, I simply said, well, what do they want to be when they're 60 and 65? I mean, you want that comfortable living, right? You want to build a rust back on something that you've invested because you've had these jobs where, and I just don't see that happening with the jobs that folks are stepping out and getting. So is there any talk about maybe changing that dialogue a little bit and saying, you know, yeah, right now it seems tough, but you're going to be happier 30 years from now. And I know that's hard to convince an 18 year old, believe me, but is there any thought process about that? Yeah, I mean, we're both parents, so I think we both know changing the dialogue with your kids is really difficult. Uh, I, I do think we as a society have to look at things a little bit differently and talk about them differently. It's really difficult. I find it really difficult. We hear from businesses right now, we need workers. We need trained and skilled workers right now. So can you, you know, LCC, can you MSU pump out those workers to us today? They're also saying, we don't know what the jobs of the future are going to look like. We couldn't even tell you what you know, type of workers we'll need in five and 10 years down the road. And I think that's a really hard message for students and families to try to parse out. So we need trained and skilled workers now, but also we don't know what it's gonna look like in the future. So how do I pick my pathway? How do I, you know, what major do I take to get a job that doesn't exist today? I, I don't know how to advise a student on that. That's really difficult. And when you start to get squishy <laughs> with students and families, that's where they start to get hesitant. Like what, you know, start to get naturally suspicious. Is this a good use of my time and money? Is this a good pathway for me? Do I need college? Uh, so that, that makes it really difficult. So that's the type of conversation that's happening. We also have a high contingent, and I mentioned it when I talked about the media earlier. It, the media gets it from this you know, somewhat polarized, somewhat politicized group of people that are trying to convince folks that college is no longer worth it, that college is, there's no return on investment, college isn't necessary. They sort of use words like, are you too good to work with your hands? Why don't you go get a skill? It's really, I would say, yucky. It's, it's, you know, trying to put our adult baggage on kids. Kids got to be able to make the decisions for themselves. What do they want to do? And, you know, we have a shortage of doctors in northern Michigan. You got to go to college to be a doctor. You know, everyone hates on lawyers, but boy, when you need one, you're glad you have a good one. So we got to have people go to law school. We've got a nursing shortage. We have a teacher shortage in our state. So the more messages we send to students is college isn't worth it, don't go to college. I'm not going to be able to get a doctor's appointment. I'm not going to be able to be cared for at the hospital. My kids aren't going to get a good education because there isn't enough teachers. Those are real problems that face us that we have to be more honest about. So we've got to really give better advice to students about the power of college, the need of college, the pathway that they can take. And if they choose not to go to college, it's not a bad thing. We should celebrate their decisions, but that does have implications for their lifestyle down the road that they should understand. We also have to better understand in our state that Michigan does not have a strong trade school system. We have a handful of independent trade schools that would identify as such. But if you want to get into a skilled trade, most likely in Michigan, you still got to go to a community college. You still got to get a certificate from an LCC, from a Washtenaw Community College, from a Gogebic Community College up in the UP. So we often, as adults, tell students, don't go to college, go to trade school. In Michigan, that is almost always the same thing. 
And so we need to start lifting those things up as college. If you go to Lansing Community College, that is in its name, a college, whether you're getting a welding certificate or an associates in business, those are both college, those are both important, but you're gonna have to go to a place where there are people who are trained to train you. And that gets missed in the message because it's, it's complex. It's not you know clean and easy to understand. My kids watch YouTube all day. They play on their video games. They love it a ton. If I could design a video game or a YouTube video that would catch their attention on this topic, I think I would make you know billions of dollars and probably save the world. But I am not smart enough to do that. <laughs> well, that was a great answer. And it really kind of encompassed it all because I think sometimes we look at the younger generations and we think, well, they just don't want to do it. But you really pointed out that they perhaps they feel like they don't have the proper guidance that they need to make such an important decision. And then that's on all of us, right? Like, how do we help them navigate that? Absolutely. Patty, you have hit it. That is so true. In the recent survey data that we read, 84% of K-12 students wanted to go to college. And when you ask the adults in the community, do you expect your kid to go to college? That was not 84%. Do you think college is important for your student to go to? That was not 84%. So we have a mismatch in values and ideas for how we want to proceed. Students see the pathway. They do. We think they don't, but they do see it. I want to go to college. I want to be a XYZ. But somewhere along the way, advice from adults or systems that don't allow them to access dampen that fire and they don't end up going. We do not have 84% of Michigan high school students graduating and going to college right now, but they're telling us they want to. Well, it's about time to close out this show, and I'd like to ask each guest if there's a story they can share about something that impacted them or in some way how they helped someone, if you could just share that with the listeners. Yeah, I, you know, I, I would say... The reason I am so passionate about this work is that college changed my life. I am from Northern Michigan. Uh, I grew up in Northern Lower Peninsula. You know, that's not a cosmopolitan area. You're not exposed to a lot of different people and different ideas up there. Wonderful place to grow up. Uh, I wouldn't change it for the world, but somewhat insular. I went to Central Michigan University and it it just changed my life. It opened up uh, leadership skills inside me. It made clear what my career pathway should be. I made the best friends that I have uh, had in my entire life that I'm still best friends with now. I met mentors and staff members, community members and faculty members that I still call for, uh, you know, as a 40 plus year old man for advice to this day. College was just a game changer for me. And, you know, I'm a white male from Northern Michigan. So if college can change my life, someone who already lives in a lot of privilege, imagine what college can do for women and people of color and other minorities who don't have as much access to these resources. So we've got to make sure that we make college more accessible, uh, more traversable, more understandable so that more people can have life-changing experiences and figure out what they want to do with their life like I was able to do so many years ago. Well, you know, I can just hear it in your voice and in the passion that you give this whole topic. So and we could talk for hours, I'm sure. I'm yes. so <laughs> I, I'm so thankful that you came on the show today to talk about all this. And hopefully we've helped somebody else, 
you know, make some decisions or maybe change the, the way they're talking to students. So I think that's I a big so. piece. Yes. College is for them. College is attainable. College is for everyone. Go to college. I promise you it'll be worth it. Great message. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. You've been listening to Start Here, Finish Here, and Everything in Between at Lansing Community College. You got me This is WLNZ Lansing. You're listening to LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. To find out more about LCC Connect programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Vision.